0: Hey folks, and welcome back to The Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motz, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we have the second portion of our series on the new covenant with James Jordan. As always, we do invite you to check out those links in the show notes. In particular, check out our YouTube channel, but well, right now we are in the midst of an ongoing series walking through the Sermon on the Mount with Peter Lighthart. We want to thank you so much for listening. We hope that you enjoyed this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan discussing the new covenant. The question that came up afterwards was, okay, if the incarnation was in the works already, uh, apart from sin, how do you really conceive of that? And. Uh, I have conceived of it before, but I had no quick answer. But I think that human history looks like this, sin or no sin. This is what I think. Uh, I think that the Father sends the Spirit to prepare humanity for the incarnation of the Son, who sends the Spirit to bring all of creation and His bride back to the Father. I think that's the shape of history, regardless of whether humanity had fallen or not. There would be some time in which the human race would be ready for the Son to come in and bring about the new creation, which has happened, we're on the other side of that, and send the Spirit, not just from the Father, but now from the Son, Of course, in a sense, all of God does all that God does, but the Spirit primarily from the Father, and now the Spirit primarily from the Son to bring us back to the Father. Um, That tells me three things about what happened 2,000 years ago. One, the human race had grown and developed to the point where it was right for the king to come into the world to bring about the new creation. I don't think we ever think about that, and someone's phone is dingly, but uh, there is some sense in which, and, and someone was making this point to me this afternoon, that we go from tribes to nations to the empires and the oikumene, the Jews are sent out into the oikumene, as we look at it tonight to be the four winds of heaven, to take the leaven of the kingdom, and that develops to the Roman Empire, which brings about peace. And in previous years when we've talked about Daniel, I've pointed out that Daniel's description of the fourth cherub empire, with all of its ferocity, is a very good match for Psalm (laughs) 2. The Roman Empire is no nonsense, and so is the Messianic Son who shatters people with a rod of iron as if they were clay pots. Uh, The fourth beast has got nothing on that. And uh, the the Romans brought about peace. And against a lot of the modern New Testament scholars, I think the New Testament points to the Romans as very good governors. Jesus says, get along with them. Uh, Jesus doesn't have any problem with any of the Romans. Paul never has any problem with any of the Romans. Every time the, Rome, every time the Jews attack the church, the Romans jump in to defend it. Pilate didn't want to put Jesus to death. Okay, The Romans aren't the problem. The Romans weren't the problem. Well, Maybe we'll talk about that a little bit tonight. It's the Jews who were in so much rebellion that the Romans had to come in and impose order. Uh, the Romans become the problem in AD 64 when the Rome falls under Nero. But it would seem as if this is the right time somehow, even though with all the mess up of sin, the right time for the Son to come into the world in terms of human maturation. And it would seem to be the right time to come in terms of the holy war, which was the second thing we talked about. It seems as if Satan's original trap of the bride in the beginning has matured through one enemy after another to the point where now Israel is a demon-possessed nation. Where are the demons? They're in the synagogues. Okay. Before, we were under the Assyrians. That was bad. Now we're under the demons. That's as bad as it gets. It seems as if the holy war has matured to the point where there is no hope unless the incarnate son comes and deals with it. Before, hey, Joshua could do some pretty heavy damage on the on the men in the promised land. But now, it's just nothing human beings can do about it. And also, third of course, sin has matured to the point where God is about to wipe out the human race. And I think most of us have heard Mark Horn's statement that God had had enough and He had sent the lightning bolt to blow up planet Earth. And on a certain Friday afternoon, Jesus Christ went up between heaven and Earth and He took the lightning bolt. But you get the impression if Jesus hadn't been crucified that afternoon, it would have been too late. Okay, Because sin had matured to that point. The iniquity of the Amorites was full. It was almost full in the days of Esther. God had said to the Jews, you know, back in Jeremiah's day, don't rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. If you do, I'll drag you off into captivity. And he apparently hadn't learned anything because Mordecai rebels against the king. And when they say, why don't you obey the king? He says, because I'm a Jew. (laughs) Us Jews, we don't obey kings. We only keep the laws we like. If We don't like the income tax, we don't pay it. Uh, That's what us Jews are like. And so God says, you know what? I've had it. I'm going to wipe out every last (coughs) single one of them. That's the story behind the story in Esther. And that's when... Esther has to have her own personal private day of atonement and go uh, before the king enthroned in his holy of holies and he receives her and everything changes. But God has been getting worse and worse. The rebelliousness has been getting worse and worse. And the Jews are the most horribly rebellious people in the ancient world. Okay. They were in the midst of a civil war that was about to destroy themselves when finally they appealed to the Romans and said, Please come in here and settle it. So Pompey came in and he called over, went over to the Idumeans, and he got Antipater, the father of Herod, and said, You rule these people. I can't find anybody inside of Judaism to rule them. Okay? And poor old Pontius Pilate offended Caesar. And Caesar said, I'm sending you to Galilee. And he said, oh, please take my life, anything, but to have to go and rule those people. Okay? That's that's what we're dealing with here. Sin was just to the point. The representative group of people in the world had gotten about as bad as you can get. They were so bad, they killed Jesus. All right? Do we need any other proof? You and I wouldn't have done that. (laughs) Or would we? No, but that's the point. It seems as if the incarnation, we think of it in terms of sin. We don't tend to think of it so much in terms of the holy war, but the holy war is all over the Gospels. Okay, and it's war against demonic powers, not against Rome. But we also need to think of it in terms of this maturation. The human race was ready to get out from under the angelic childhood and become grown up, but that had to happen And I don't know how to sort all this out. 10,000 years from now, people will be able to do a much better job than I can do. But we have to put this on the table because we have shrunk the message of the kingdom down to where it's just salvation. We don't have any holy warriors. That's why there's no problem with having women as pastors. Because we've had women as pastors for 200 years. We just haven't called them women. What does our worship services look like? I think you guys probably like tonight's worship service, but is that what most of them are like? You sing all these warfare songs, songs about being falsely accused and looking forward to being vindicated. Not very often. You look at the worship service in the book of Revelation. It starts off with a trumpet sound. John turns around during the day of the Lord and he sees the real preacher and the guy's dressed in armor. He's all tanked out in bronze. He's ready for war. He says, come on up here, John. Let me show you what worship really looks like. So he gets up there, and there are all these ter- terrifying things, and all this singing's going on, and it's almost deafening. Then they bring out the book, and they start breaking open the seals, and people start dying. Oh, is that what worship is like? Yeah. When you worship right, the world changes. And this singing goes on and on and on, and finally it's time for the singing to stop to hear the Word. Guys come out with seven trumpets. And as they blow the trumpets, people die. A third of the sea, the Gentiles, a third of the land, the Jews, a third of the springs of water, that's the priests. I'm going to try to prove that. Death, Dying in the book of Revelation means conversion as often as anything else. It means you, you either get baptized and die that way or you get wiped off. Okay, I saw Satan falling from heaven, Jesus says, when they went out and preached. The book of Revelation shows. And after the word is read, seven scripture passages are read from seven trumpets, then we have the sermon. And the sermon is, hey, pretty soon here we're going to have the sea beast come up and it's going to be bad and there's going to be a land beast, these Herods, and they're going to have the false temple built, this beast image, but don't sweat it because they're going to kill all of you and you're going to be martyred. Big harvest of bread and wine. And the blood of the saints is going to cover the land and that's going to call up the avenger of blood and then that's just going to be it. And meanwhile, you're going to get to go up to heaven. That's the sermon. So then the singing starts again. And the liturgy takes up again and they bring out seven chalices and it's time for the sacrament. And when they start pouring out these chalices, more people start being dead and converted. And then they're invited to the marriage Supper of the Lamb. Meanwhile, the vultures get to come to their supper. And during the marriage of the Lamb, after the communion is over, we have the dismissal and the armies ride out of heaven. Meanwhile, the angels have given up their thrones and the saints occupy the thrones of the angels' head. That's what happens during a worship service. We just don't see it. But we're Protestants, so we don't have to see it, right? We live by faith alone. That's what happens. And if you understand that worship is warfare, then you don't have deaconesses doing the worship service. You're supposed to have deaconesses. The church is supposed to have a nurturing ministry. If you don't have deaconesses, then go home and have some. All right? But deaconesses aren't priests. Priests worship is warfare. Little boys play with guns. Little girls play with dolls. And you can't change that by ordaining women. Okay? And you can't make a woman's voice go down an octave either. Men's voices are darker, deeper. So in a worship service, the man speaks first and calls to worship, and the bride speaks last by singing amen. Okay? That's the order. Worship is warfare. Well, how do I get off onto that? I'd rather talk about that, but... We have to talk about the new covenant now. So, if if you have notes, then it's on page three. Let's we'll talk about first of all, Gentiles before Elijah, because I'm gonna I'm gonna say here that one of the essential characteristics of this new covenant is the universalization of the kingdom. We were looking in the previous session at how the, gospel, the, the, the kingdom starts in the sanctuary garden, and Adam is supposed to mature to the point where he's wise enough to be brought to the tree of knowledge of good and evil, to go through the transforming experience of being sent out into the land of wheat and to the land of wisdom, okay? That seems to be the land. But there's a big side of that which is the the history that goes from the land to the world. Before Elijah, the Gentile God-fearers that we see in the Old Testament and we see myriads of them. Joseph and all the Egyptians who are rejoicing at every good thing that happens to him. Those who bless you, I will bless. The Egyptians bless God's people. Pharaoh can't do enough for God's people. Okay? God is interested in saving people. Don't give me this common grace stuff. The Old Testament is full of God saving people. And he saves these Egyptians and then they apostatize later on, but so do the Jews. We read in, in Joshua that the Jews were worshiping the foreign gods when they were living in Egypt. So what do you expect the Egyptians to do? They're saved. The law tells us how Gentile God fears. They don't have to be circumcised. If you're circumcised, you have to live in Israel. You have to go to the feast every year. God doesn't want people all stuck in Israel. He wants the priestly nation there, but He wants God-fearers spread out all over the world, ministered to. But to, become, to be ministered to, you have to come there. Israel is put at the crossroads of the nation, you know, right here, where all the caravans to Africa go through on the king's highway. And all the caravans from Asia to Africa go through on the king's highway. So there's always Gentile and God-fearers in the land. And the law has all this stuff to say about how you minister to Gentiles, how you witness to them, how you got to be careful of them while they're living in the cities because they worship other gods sometimes. There's a big interest. Hiram of Tyre and all the Tyrians. There they are, believers, helping to build the temple. The Queen of Sheba coming up from the opposite direction wants to hear about the Lord. Great stuff. Uriah the Hittite. We're ministering, having influence. These people are coming into the land. That's the way it is. But there's only one anointed king. Only one place where Yahweh's oil has been put on a king to make him a messianic king. But then something really big happens in the book of Kings. And of course, I should just yield the floor here, but I'll go ahead and do it. And then if there are other things to be said, it can be added to by Peter, whose book on Kings is about to come out. Okay, and it's in First Kings chapter 19. Because you see, you had Hiram of Tyre and Solomon, you had Jew and Gentile together building the true tower of Babel, the, the temple. And now we've got a counterfeit of that. We've got Jezebel from Tyre and Sidon, and we've got Ahab, and they're building the counterfeit tower of Babel just like way back in Genesis when the Hebrews and the Hamites got together to build a counterfeit tower, the city and the tower, okay? One religious confession and one vocabulary. City, tower, and city. Jochdanite Hebrews and Hamites together building the counterfeit tower. God smashed it and called Abraham. Now we have Ahab and Jezebel. We read about Omri's building projects and Ahab's building projects, all that stuff. Where's Peter? I'm looking at him for confirmation. He's there. Yeah, okay, good. I'm on the right page. And then God smashes. God smashes it and we get another Abraham. Okay. Elijah, essentially, is like another Abraham. We get another Abrahamic-like period. Another prophetic period, which is going to be followed by another priestly period ministering in the Oikumene, and then another kingly period with Jesus, the greater David, who comes. Only on an international scene. No longer just on one nation. And listen, you see, we don't notice this because we are too familiar with it. The Lord says to Elijah... First of all, he says, I'm the only prophet left because they've killed the prophets who are in the caves. And the Lord says, yes, but there's 7,000 church members there and you've got to go create the sons of the prophets and start teaching these 7,000. Meanwhile, you go to the wilderness of Damascus and when you have arrived, you shall anoint Hazael king over Syria. Notice that? Anoint. We never had any oil poured on the head of a Gentile before. God is now reaching out and claiming another nation. He's not just raising up the Assyrians uh, the Assyrians or Arameans. He actually says, anoint him. Do the same thing to him that you did with David. Samuel the prophet anointed Saul and anointed David. Now Elijah the prophet is supposed to anoint Hazael. This is the beginning of this new international covenant. Yahweh, among the nations, he's going to be known as the Most High, all right, is going to claim. So, el the word, he doesn't have the word Yah in his name. He has the word El, though, okay? And Eli Yah, both names are there. My God is Yah. Eli, my God, my mighty one, my powerful one, is Yahweh. And he anoints Hazael. The kings of Syria or Aram are usually called Ben-Hadad, which means what? Son of Hadad. And who's Hadad? The the God. Okay. All the kings of these nations were called the sons of whatever God. That's why the king in Israel is called the son of God or the son of Yahweh. And these kings are called Ben-Hadad, the son of Hadad. But that's Hazael. He's not given that name here. And he's to be anointed. God is going to put a claim on him. This starts something new because right now we're in the remnant covenant. What we we in this group call the remnant covenant. It's got new covenant order, new places of worship, new so- social arrangement, uh, new situation for these people in the north who cannot go down to the temple. Okay, and we won't talk about all the details of that. But why starting now? The prophets start sending letters to these nations. Okay. Elijah, he's sending letters out. Amos, he's sending letters out. There's all kinds of interesting stuff here. And then Jonah is sent out to these nations. We read in Daniel chapter 7 that the four winds of the heaven were stirring up the great sea. Okay, what's the great sea? This the, the Gentile world, okay? It's not the great deep. People say, oh, this is some type of mythological stuff where the great monsters come out of the deep. No, they're not chaos monsters coming out of the deep. They're various nations coming out of the Gentile sea. And who are the four winds of heaven? They're the saints. It says so in Zechariah chapter 2. And I know not all of you believe me, so I'm just going to quote it for you. Zechariah 2 identifies this symbolism for us. It says... Hmm. <laughs> somewhere it says it in here. Somewhere. Yes, Zechariah two verse six. Flee from the land of be- from the land of the north, declares Yahweh. For I have spread you out as the four winds of the heavens. I have spread you Jews out as the four winds of heavens, and He says, you will be in a Jerusalem without walls, a mystery Jerusalem, which will be surrounded by a wall of fire. Hey, this is a whole lot better than anything in Solomon's day. Can you believe that the Jews in Jesus' day wanted to go back to the days of Solomon? When they had this, they had a Jerusalem without walls, had a wall of fire around it. They were spread out as God's witnesses as the four winds all around the empire. Then we read that there's a 49-fold lampstand, seven times as much light and power we read in chapter 6, there's this temple here. And instead of two bronze pillars by the door of the temple, there are two bronze mountains. Chariots with horses are riding out of the temple. And the angel says, these are the four winds of heaven going forth out of standing before the Lord of the earth. Every Sunday morning. All the people in your congregation who have been standing before the Lord of the earth and having the covenant renewed, they go out as the four winds of heaven and they bring Sabbath rest to the north and they go forth to the south. Hey, this is so much cooler, so much more powerful than anything that had ever existed before. And these four winds of heaven, Jonah is one of the first of them. He stirs up, he goes there and all the Assyrians convert. Of course, that's what happens every time in the Old Testament. You go to Israel and preach and they kill you. You go to the Gentiles and they say, Oh, how can we be saved? I wish it was that easy today. But it sure seems to happen a lot in the Old Testament. Changes them. Okay? Builds them up. They stop worshiping all the spirits and things and become scientific in their world outlook. (laughs) After a while, they become a powerful nation. Then they apostatize. So Nahum writes a whole book to them. Because they had been... A converted nation. This is in the remnant covenant. We're already reaching out and claiming all these nations. What, What do you suppose these kings think when a letter comes from some prophet in Israel and says, for three transgressions and for four, Yahweh says, I have had it with you. You're a toast because you were cruel and vicious to my images. Read Amos 1 and 2. He condemns the Jews for not keeping the law. He condemns all the Gentiles for their cruelty to the image of God. That's the standard by which they're measured. What do these kings think? Who are these Jews? Who do they think they are? Well, the fact is they all knew who the Jews were, didn't they? Everybody knew who the Jews were. Everybody knew who they were. They've been around for a long time. So here we have Israel. And these nations out here... Well, actually, we can't put any over here because the Mediterranean Sea is here. And in the Old Testament, everything is either north, south, or east. Nobody ever goes west until Paul comes along. He's the first person to ever go west. But we're extending claims, beginning to extend claims over this area. It's not organized yet, but people are going out anointing Hazael. Then we come to the restoration. We come to the death and resurrection of Israel. But God not only takes Israel into death and resurrection, He takes all these nations down into death. And when they're resurrected, they are no longer separate nations, but one new nation. I want another color. When they're resurrected... They are now one nation, which the New Testament calls the oikumene, or oikumene. It's a very specific word. It does not mean the same thing as cosmos. All over the New Testament, it says the gospel is going to go to the entire world, and then it's going to come to an end. That's that word oikumene. Destruction of Jerusalem comes after the gospel goes to the whole oikumene. Israel obviously dies, doesn't it? There's death. Exile, a lot of people are killed. The book of Lamentations is there. We all know this. We may forget that in the book of Ezekiel, the whole world dies, or all of this world dies. My favorite passage in the Bible. No, not quite, but I love it. This Lamentation over Pharaoh, this beautiful passage in the 29th chapter, where Pharaoh sinks down to the bottom of existence, okay? And he says... uh, No, it's in chapter... 32. As he sinks down to the bottom, it says, Assyria is there and all her company, her graves around her. All of them are slain, fallen by the sword. Their graves are in the remotest parts of the pent. All of them are slain, fallen by the sword, though they were terrifying in their day. Elam is there and all her multitude around her grave. All of them slain, fallen by the sword. They went down uncircumcised to the lower parts of the earth. And all of these nations are listed, and all of them have sunk down to the absolute bottom, okay? And Pharaoh is there, and Pharaoh will be comforted when he sees that they're all there. And then, at that point in the book of Ezekiel, the resurrection starts. So the resurrection starts first with Israel, and then with these nations, but when they're resurrected, they're all part of this new empire. Babylon has conquered most of them, the Persians follow with the rest. Babylonian conquest of these places is really their death. And with Cyrus is the resurrection of the Oikumene. And just as when Israel came out of Egypt, they came out a new nation with a new organization. They went down into Egypt, 12 tribes, 12 separate tribes. But then in Numbers chapter 7, when they came out of Egypt, each of the princes of the tribe brought fealty before Yahweh and to his priests and gave all of these gifts as that long chapter where each tribe brings this long list of things. And now it becomes one nation with one priesthood there's a big objection to that. Korod, and Nabiram they say, hey, we want each tribe to have its own priests. No, sir. One nation with one priest. One priestly environment. That's what this is. The book of Daniel establishes that the Jews are to be priests for this whole thing. You're not going to get to have separate priests over here. Only the Jews are priests. The whole nation of Jews are priests. And they're priests to this whole area which is now resurrected. All right? So, that's where it starts. And it's got all this new stuff. This is a new period in history. It sets stage for the New Testament period. There's no more idolatry. We get the New Testament, there's no idolatry. Nobody's going out on high places and bowing down to anything. Different kinds of sins are the problem. There are no kings. The high priest rules the nation. Originally, they were doing a good job and then an evil job. There are many more Gentile converts hanging around when we get to this period. Why? Because the four winds of heaven? Now they've done some work out here making converts, okay? And we have this world imperial context in which everything is going on. This is clearly a new covenant period of biblical revelation, and that's why I had Jeremiah 31 read to you. This is really the first big part of what we call the new covenant. And we make a mistake if we think the New Covenant didn't exist by anticipation before. This is the priestly phase of the New Covenant. With Jesus, we come to the kingly phase. But Jesus has to serve within this priestly phase. Now this is where... I'm going to say this now so so I don't forget it. This is where I think New Testament theology has gotten messed up. Because they go straight from David to Jesus and they don't have these periods in between. And so Jesus comes and basically he is living in a context of this mysterious. There are these Romans around, the whole Gospel of Luke with its oikumene context. When is this? Well, it's just like some new start on things that comes without a context. In what situation is Jesus being a servant, being under these kings, ministering as a priest, refusing to divide inheritances, What is the context in which he's doing that? Well, it's some vague context starting in Moses. No, it isn't. It's this context. Jesus is being the perfect Jewish priest in the Oikumene. He is the perfect minister to uh, Roman Gentiles. He is doing the priestly phase of the new covenant so that he can bring in the kingly phase. And so Jeremiah 31, and this is where it's important, and if you haven't seen this before, I just want you to see it. What you heard tonight is in Jeremiah 31 started in verse 27, Behold, days are coming when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. As I have washed over them to pluck down, now I will build them up. Death and resurrection, okay? I will restore Judah and Israel. Then it says, Behold, days are, new days are coming when I will make a new covenant. Then he says, in verse 38, Behold, days are coming. Days are coming, days are coming, days are coming. When the city will be rebuilt from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. The city is rebuilt. Well, when did Israel come back from exile? When was the city rebuilt? In the first year of Cyrus and then on down to the to the book of Nehemiah. That's the days that are coming. And in the middle of that, it says, days are coming when I will make a new covenant, not like the covenant I made with their fathers when I took them out of Egypt. This is the new covenant I will make. I will write their law within them and on their heart. They will not teach each other as neighbor, saying, Know the Lord, because they all know me. I will forgive their liabilities. And this is never going to change. Well, there's a sense in which this happens after the exile, Okay. Unlike the former days, the people do respond to Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, and Zechariah. They never responded to the former prophets. Now they apostatize. But they do respond. You know, the Jewish folk religion in the days of the kings was not the temple. Very few people bothered with the temple. Jewish folk religion was high place worship. They statues of Yahweh and his wife. They're kids and angels and they brought food and out there and all that stuff. Uh, my friend Peter Enns has written a book in which he tries to say that the Old Testament was written in the context of the ancient world. I think the Old Testament was written in a kind of a context that was separated off from the ancient world and has its own history. bound read off because nobody liked Moses. They just had to put up with him because he could kill people who didn't like him. Okay, uh, They didn't listen to these prophets. After the exile, they did. After the exile, you find that the people aren't interested in going back to high places. They set up synagogues. Okay, People in Jerusalem were saying the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They made the temple into an idol. They were judged for it. By the time we get to Jesus, the Jews have made the law into an idol, saying, Torah, Torah, Torah. <laughs> but hey, they're because these are law-centered people. They study the law all the time. It's law, law, law. They love the Bible. Okay, this is, this is the law. Really, is written all over on them by the in the time Jesus comes. This is coming to pass. Now we know the fullness of it comes uh, after Pentecost. Why? Because Paul, uh, someone says so in Hebrews. You know, if you all weren't Presbyterians but Reformed, the Belgian Confession would tell you who wrote the book of Hebrews. But Presbyterians don't have that. This is a new covenant, okay, after the exile. And all these books on the history of the covenant that jump from David to Jesus miss this. And this is a big thing to miss, okay? Similarly, Ezekiel 36. Seth in verse 26. Moreover, he says, talking about coming back from the exile, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes." Now, the big fulfillment of that, according to 2 Corinthians, is in is after Pentecost. But what does he mean by taking out the heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh? Okay. The heart of stone, this, this is Ezekiel. Everything in Ezekiel happens in the temple. The heart of stone is the Ten Commandments which are in the heart of the temple. And when the word becomes flesh and dwells among us, actually the word dead debir, debir means holy of holies. The holy of holies became flesh and dwells in, in, among us and a tabernacle is pitched around him. That's the heart of flesh. Jesus is the new heart. The old heart was the heart of stone. Written on stone, it's a good thing. You got a stone heart, man. You're got something to build on. It's immovable. You can count on it. God is a rock throughout the Old Testament. There's no rock like our rock. We say when we start a sermon, may the Lord, may the words of my mouth and meditations of our hearts be acceptable, O Lord, our rock and our kinsmen. All right. God is a rock, heart of stone. What's better than that? Heart of flesh incarnate. That already happens after the death of resurrection, after the death and resurrection of Israel in the wilderness, doesn't it? Because the Ten Commandments are said again by Moses, a human being. And he changes them a little bit, doesn't he? The Word is made flesh by Moses when he gives the law a second time. The first time it was spoken by God and written on stone. The second time, after the death and resurrection of Israel in the wilderness... When the bride is elevated, and the second census of Israel includes the women as well as the men, then the word is made flesh. And what does the 10th commandment say? You will not covet your neighbor's wife, you will not covet your neighbor's house and all the stuff in the house. That changes things, doesn't it? First time it was, "Don't, don't covet your neighbor's house, and that includes his wife and all the other stuff he owns. The new version says, Don't covet your neighbor's wife and his house and all the stuff he owns. Ladies, which version do you like better? Okay. We've got the idea that because the first one was written on stone, that makes it permanent. No, it was written on stone, that makes it first, and it was already changed. Israel was only under the first version of the Ten Commandments for 40 years. Moses, the Holy Spirit changed it after 40 years. I don't know why that point has escaped Reformed people, but it has. Oh, just another insult to start a BH conference off with. (laughs) Uh, If you're going to do the Ten Commandments in church and you really just ought to use the Beatitudes, but if you're going to use them, use the ones in Deuteronomy. Make the ladies happy. Well, let's, let's look at some of these things. This is a great new covenant. It's initiated by prophets who reestablished the priesthood. That's Zechariah. Zechariah, we've got a problem. We're rebuilding the temple, but in order to cleanse the stuff in the temple, we need a high priest. But the high priest is defiled, and in order for the high priest to be cleansed, the temple needs to be in operation. If the high priest sins, he has to bring a bull for a purification offering, and that means the whole system has to be in operation. But you can't have the system in operation unless the high priest goes through and anoints everything. So we call this catch 22. How are you going to fix it? Well, Zechariah sees during the night that the Lord removes the sins off of Jeshua the high priest and reestablishes him. And then he can cleanse the temple site. So, a new covenant. we got a new temple that's built. It doesn't look like much, but Ezekiel and Zechariah tell us that by faith... We see that this shabby-looking building is in reality a whole lot bigger and a whole lot more glorious than the Temple of Solomon. There's a change in the priesthood. Now the high priests have to be Zadokites. That wasn't true before. This is super important because the apostasy of the priesthood comes when they kick out the Zadokites. There's a change in law and administration. There are changes that take place in Ezekiel. A big change that's not expressed in the Bible but must be true is the law requires every circumcised man over 20 to appear at all three annual feasts. Three times a year all your men will appear before me and you will never appear (laughs) empty-handed. How are you going to apply that when you've been spread out as the four winds throughout the empire? If you live over in Babylon or you live in Rome, can you come to Jerusalem three times a year, every year? No, you can't. So there is an implied change in law that is here, and there are others as well. There's a new land of God. We now have the land around the land. This that God claims, He says, this is my land. We have one angel over this land. What's the name of the angel over the Oikoumene? Gabriel, right. Book of Daniel. That's why it's in Luke where Gabriel shows up and gives the information. Luke is the gospel. It's in the, mainly in this ecumenical context. So Gabriel comes and he announces that Jesus isn't just coming to the Jews. He's coming to this whole bunch here. Okay. Michael is over the Holy Land. Now we have a new land. We have a Holy Land. This never was a Holy Land before. It's smaller than the land promised to Abraham. You know, people say, well, the Jews need to get back to the land because it was promised to Abraham. Well, they had it and they lost it and they never had it again. The end of that land was with the Babylonian exile. That was it. They never went back to the land of milk and honey again. They went to the Holy Land. Same geographical location, but it's a new place. Smaller. Galilee. Judea with Samaria, the question mark area in between. That's the holy land. And they got a holy city. Jerusalem was never a holy city before. Now it's a holy city. It's a bride city. Nehemiah. Nehemiah comes before the king and the text tells us, I went before the king and the queen was sitting next to him. Why are we told that? Because it's Esther. Well, that's who it is. But that's not why we're told it. We're told it because the city is a bride city and the the king needs a bride and the Jews are his bride people. They're the ones, they're the whole company of Esthers who are going to be in the bride city. But this is a holy city because as Peter pointed out years ago, all the people are enlisted to go around the wall of this city and guard it exactly the same way the Levites guarded the walls of the temple before. Now this whole area is expanded All the Jews are lifted up in holiness to the point where they can be semi-Levites and guard this wall and be stationed at its gates. And the, the place is measured off, which is always true of holy places. So we got a holy city. And the people are holier. They're more Levitical than they were before. Formerly, the people didn't have anything to do with this guarding of holy spaces. Now... The temple is still guarded by Levites, but we have this holy city area, and it's guarded by citizens. Beforehand, if you were in a synagogue, the pastor of a synagogue was a Levite. When we get to Jesus' day, do you have to be a Levite to be a leader in the synagogue? No. Everybody's been upgraded to the point where you don't have to be a Levite or adopted into the clan of Levites. I'm sure if you had a beautiful voice, you could be adopted into the Levitical choir. But you would have been adopted. Now you don't have to be. Same way in the Mosaic period, the Levites are the pastors of the local synagogues. Things change. And the people are more royal. They're still members of individual tribes, but those tribes no longer have any geography. And they're all Jews. Jews means member of the tribe of Judah. Royal tribe. Everybody's in the royal tribe. They may still be Dan, Asher of the tribe of, not Asher of the tribe, whatever, Anna of the tribe of Asher. But she's also a member of the royal tribe of Judah. Everybody's upgraded. God's new name, Yahweh of armies, Lord of hosts. Well, when you don't, you know, when you're living in the empire and you no longer have your own king, the Lord says, I'm your army. You don't need an army. You know what? You Jews do not need an army because I'm all the army you'll ever need. I, Yahweh. What's wrong with you people? You want to be like the Romans and have your own empire and have your Jewish army. Hey, I'm all the army you need. I'm Yahweh of hosts. You don't need an army. That's over with. And it's a lot better? Back in the old days, you had to have all these taxes, conscripts, you had to fight your own battles and have your own king. What a pain. Now the emperor is going to take care of that and you don't have to do it anymore. And all they could think about was how they wanted to go back to that. Well, this new situation sets the stage for the arrival of the new covenant. This is the covenant that's the immediate context of Jesus' work. This is the one that's broken. And Jesus' condemnation of it is for two things. They fail to maintain the priesthood among the nations, and they fail to maintain a proper witness before the nations. First of all, he says, you have made the temple into a den of thieves. You're buying and selling the offices. And we'll see that in a minute. And you fail to bear witness before the nation because this is to be a house of prayer for all nations and you're not really praying for the nations or letting them in. You don't like the nations. You don't like the Romans. You don't appreciate the peace that they've given you. You've forgotten the fact that you were about to kill each other off before they came in and settled things down. Now what happened to this wonderful new covenant? Well, it underwent a fall. It's described in Daniel 11. It's when the Jews commit the desolating sacrilege. The Bible says abomination of desolation. Commentators say, oh, that's when the bad king Antiochus Epiphanes put a statue in in the temple. No, it's not. The only people who can abominate the temple are the priests. They're the ones whose blood, when they're anointed, blood is put on their ear and blood is put on the horns of the altar and the right thumb horn and the big toe horn. They are sealed to the, to the temple and its furniture. Oil is put on these things. They're the ones who are connected to the temple and only they can defile it. Gentiles can go into the temple and they can pee all over everything in it. And they can pour pig's blood on it. And it makes no more difference than if a mouse ran through it. Or if a bird made droppings on it. It doesn't do anything. Okay? They can attack the temple. They can't defile the temple. But Aaron could. Aaron could commit the abomination that causes desolation and cause God to say, I'm out of here. I'm going to move out of the camp. Eli could do it. His sons grabbing the sacrifices and sleeping with the deaconesses at the tabernacle. God says, I'm out of here. I'm gone. I'll go to the Philistines. And when the ark comes back, they didn't put the tabernacle back together again. The priest can commit the abomination that causes desolation. Read Ezekiel chapter 8, 9 and 10 and 11. You'll see the priests, they made the temple into an Egyptian temple with Egyptian pictographs of animals and things all over the walls. And they're outside bowing down to the solar disk. He says this is what they're doing in their hearts. That's what they really are. And we see the chariot pack up and move out. The abominations that cause God to desolate. And the desolating sacrilege that happens in the middle of this period is that the Jews decided that they didn't want to be a weird, peculiar people anymore. They wanted to be Greeks. They wanted Jerusalem to be a nice Greek city. The priests who were the leaders of the community instituted Olympic Games in Greece. Some of them even decircumcised themselves. Something that I'd rather not think about. And, uh, but they were into a recapping. And they, um, you know, there's this organization out there called Recap. You think you've heard it all. They did this. They kicked out the true Zadokite high priest, Onias III. They got rid of him. They drove him into exile. And his brother, Jason, whose name had originally been Joshua or Jesus, he changed his name to Jason because he wanted to be a good Greek boy. He went to Antiochus and he robbed the temple. He stole the money out of the temple and bought the office from Antiochus. Antiochus says, sure, I don't care what you Jews do. I've got nothing against you one way or the other. you will do whatever you want. You want it? Sure, you can have it. Because he brought letters saying, all of us priests, this is what we want. We want the city to be a good Hellenistic city with Olympic Games. Antiochus said, I don't care what you want as long as you give me money. A few years later, another guy who wasn't a priest at all, his name was Menachem, but he changed his name to Menelaus. He went and brought even more money so he could be the high priest. Then they had a civil war between Jason and Menelaus. Well, Antiochus couldn't have a civil war in Jerusalem because Jerusalem was the city that was right on the boundary with Egypt. And the Romans were in Egypt, and they had said, we don't like you, Antiochus Epiphanes, and uh, you better not make any more trouble for Egypt. So Antiochus says, I've got to fortify Jerusalem, and these Jews are murdering each other. So I'm just going to settle it. So he settled it and he fortified the city, and then all the Jewish writings blame him for everything. Well, they don't. Actually, 2nd Maccabees says it was the sins of the Jews that brought him down on him. He's not the bad guy. Okay? The bad guys were the robbers, as Daniel calls them, who bought and sold the office of the high priest, who converted the temple into a Hellenistic shrine to the ineffable God behind the gods. And when Antiochus, a philosopher king, and Epicure and comes there and he offers a sacrifice to Zeus Olympos. What's he doing? What does Zeus Olympos mean? It means God of heaven. That's what the Jews call their God. He says, yeah, we all worship the same God. All temples are the same. They're all avenues to the same piety. So I'll come here and I'll, I'll join in. But you Jews need to understand this is a part of the worldwide philosophical religion. And they said, oh yeah, we're all good liberals here. Uh, We like Paul Tillich. Uh, We're we're into all of this. Uh, This philosophical religion. We've read Immanuel Kant. We don't like Van Til. Uh, So that's what they were into. The Jews did that. That was the apostasy. Now the Maccabees drove out the Antiochus. Um, which is somewhat questionable, but at any rate, they made the uh, Israel independent for a while, but did they restore the true high priest? No, they made themselves high priests. They took it over. I personally think that Maccabees Maccabees were probably high placers, and that they were anti-temple, but I don't know for sure. Whatever the case is, when they took over, they didn't restore the true high priest. The regular priests came back and they could do the regular work in the temple. But you have to have a high priest to do the Day of Atonement. And there was no high priest. Because you had to be a That meant there was no Day of Atonement. That means, what is the Day of Atonement? On the Day of Atonement, what happens is, all year long, when you bring your sacrifices or you wash yourself from uncleanness, all that stuff goes somewhere. And where it goes is it goes to the tabernacle and it starts to pile up in there. Invisibly, but we live by faith. All the garbage, all the sins, all the liabilities, all the uncleanness, it's all piling up. And once a year, it all piles up on the high priest. The high priest takes off his glorious garments. Then he takes all of this stuff that's piled up on him and he puts it on the goat's and they carry it away, and everything is cleansed. And then He puts back on His glorious garments, and the year starts again. Those who are justified are glorified. They're always next to each other. The Garden of Eden, God kills an animal, then He puts royal tunics on Adam and Eve. That's why in Hebrew, the Day of Atonement is called the Day of Coverings, plural. Two coverings take place. The Ark is covered with blood, covering of justification, Sin is taken away and the high priest is covered in glory and he starts another year. But now what's happening? Symbolically, the sins are piling up and they're just piling up year after year. And there comes a day when God says, I've had it and I'm going to destroy the world. And that was the day Jesus went on the cross. There was no removal of these sins. Okay, so we don't see Jesus going to the Day of Atonement in the Gospels. He didn't agree with the Essenes. The Essenes said, because we have a wicked high priest, everything in the temple is wrong. He didn't agree with the Sadducees, who said the high priest is just fine and dandy, so everything in the temple is right. I think he split the middle. I think that the Pharisees and the other Orthodox parties in Israel said the high priest is bad, but the other priests are okay. So we can have all the other feasts, but not the Day of Atonement. I suspect that's what the Orthodox in Israel thought, and that seems to have been what Jesus thought. In heaven, I'll find out if I'm right about that guess, but it makes sense to me, unless there's information I don't know about. That's the context in which what we call the New Testament comes. Just like what happened in the Old Testament, we had a priestly period, then we had the sins of Eli and his sons. Okay, and God brought in the Philistines and brought in punishment. Okay, just like Antiochus Epiphanes, and then there was a restoration, but it was not a complete restoration. The Ark was located uh, among the Gibeonites. At, on the hill of what? Yeah. Tell me, Peter. I can't remember. I can't remember either. Well, that was in Jerusalem, but for a while it was for a hundred years. These two places were separated, and even in David's day, he had a shrine uh, at, uh, at one place for the tabernacle, and he moves the ark to Jerusalem. They're separate, and since they're separate, you can't have a day of atonement. Okay, you can have some other rituals. Like we find that the priests in the days of Saul, they had the showbread, the face bread, and they had other things that they did. But you know, if you've got 50 miles in between the ark and the, the altar, you can't do the Day of Atonement. <laughs> because the high priest has to kill the animal out here and sprinkle some blood out here, and then he has to take it in behind the veil and do stuff in here and come back out. You can't do it. And it wasn't put back together again. So now that period of time corresponds to the time from from the apostasy to the time of Jesus. And Jesus comes at the time of David. First we have Herod who is Saul and then we have Jesus who is David and also the priest. So he comes at that time. That's the context in which he comes. That's this world in which he comes. That's the situation he's going to transform. He's going to transform this world. In Jesus... This whole world will die and rise again to cover the entire globe. Okay? Israel dies and the oikumene is formed. This world dies and the entire surface of the planet is now God's kingdom. These are the progressive moves. And so when we get to the book of Acts, what I'm going to argue is in Acts we have the ministry, to Judea, then we have the ministry to the Oikumene, and then in Revelation chapter 20 in the year 70, after the death and resurrection of the church and the Great Tribulation, and afterwards, the entire world. That'll be my argument. But you see, I don't think we can even begin to understand what Paul is doing if we don't have this background. Nobody in the New Testament goes anywhere except to the Roman Empire. They're not shown going anywhere else. You can talk to me about Thomas. I don't know. Okay. All I know is what the text says. In the text, this is the issue. Okay, This has to be harvested. Then there will be an attack, and then a resurrection, and then the whole world. This is a progress. If you don't see this in the New Testament, just become, the book of Acts, just becomes this interesting series of stories about who did, God did this and another guy did that. But it isn't. It's following a very close plan. The first 12, 11 chapters, the Petrine part, tracks the book of Joshua from beginning to end and establishes how the 12 apostles rule in the land of Israel at this time. And then starting with Paul. We move into a prophetic time, and Paul is exactly like the Old Testament prophets. He's doing what they do. When you understand that, there are some things in Paul that, well, I don't want to say anything about a new perspective or something like that that might result, but there is a reason why there's all this new perspective talk about Paul, and maybe I'll try to give you a few of my thoughts on that. At any rate, I, I think this, this idea of bringing in a new covenant, we see these new covenants that come about, and we've seen tonight, I hope I've said enough to where you are at least thinking about the priestly phase of the new covenant, where we are spread out in the world as witnesses, where we are supposed to pray for all the nations, where in the, book of, in the book of Daniel, the prophecy was that these nations were going to go bad. Okay? In chapter 8, he prophesies that. And what does he say? He says that the Persians and the Greeks are just like sheep and goats. They're sacrificial animals. And why do they go bad? Because the Jews corrupt the continual daily offerings. That's the center of the narrative. The Jews corrupt the continual offering. And so instead of sacrificing for the nations, offering sheep and goats to cover the sins of the nations, the Jews stop doing that in their apostasy, and the result is the nations go berserk because they're not getting the grace that should have come to them if the Jews had been praying for them. They had failed to keep the temple up as a house to pray for all these nations and instead were buying and selling the offices of the high priest. As a result, the nations are going crazy. They're not getting the benefits of the priestly nation praying for them and witnessing for them. And as Jesus says, you go out and witness and it's the point where the people you evangelize among the Gentiles, you make twice the sons of hell that you are yourselves. So this is the default of their calling. Jesus comes to do those things right. okay? And he does everything else that has been said in the Old Testament right too, but he, he does this right. That new, te- that new covenant calling to be priests, they have failed to do, and so Jesus does it. Nobody can buy Jesus' office. Satan tried. He wasn't for sale in the temptations. All right. So Jesus, now to fulfill the entire history, comes to the tree of knowledge. And Jesus is crucified on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's where death takes place. And he has to be, and he has to be hanged up on a tree. Now, you know, we, our pictures show him as hung on a telephone pole with the cross nailed to it. I don't think Romans did that. Why would they cut a tree down, make a big pole out of it, dig a hole, and put a guy up on that when there are all these perfectly good trees all around that they can nail guys to? And the New Testament says he was nailed to a tree and I think he was. I think he was nailed to an olive tree in the, in the, on the Mount of Olives because you have to be there in order to look across and see the veil, temple, veil rent in half and besides the place is called Golgotha which means what? Goliath of Gath. And that's where Goliath's skull was put by David. So if he was crucified at the place where Goliath's skull was, then it was the Mount of Olives, which makes sense to me. But at any rate, at least that's where I think it was. Okay. So I think he was nailed to a tree, but whether he was nailed to a tree or a pole, it means that Adam stole this fruit. Vantel said it was a persimmon. I'm not going to. I'm not going to argue with Vantel. So. Whatever it was, and yes, that's, that's a joke. You're supposed to laugh. He said that, and ha, you got it. Okay, whatever it was, he ate it, and it went inside of the human race. And every human being that's ever been born has got that fruit inside of it. Well, the whole world's full of people who have got that fruit inside of them. I mean, symbolically now. All in some biological sense, too, I guess. Whatever morphic resonance there is, has uh, continued on down there. And what do you have to do if you steal something? Gotta put it back. So how are you gonna get it back on that tree? You wanna nail it back up? All right. I know there's no verse that says that, but I think this, that's real. I think Jesus has to be nailed back up on that tree to replace what Adam stole. And what Adam stole is inside of human beings, and now Jesus puts it back. But I think, there's, I think that the Scripture shows us a double death that's going on here. We're told in 1 Corinthians 15 that the sting of death is sin. Okay? The sting of death is sin. Okay, take sin out of it, and you've taken the sting out of death. Now that means death is no longer an enemy, in a sense. Alright? It's just falling asleep. And so, I think there's the first death. Jesus experiences three hours of darkness under the wrath of God. It's dark. It's a reversion of everything to the very first day of creation where it's all totally dark and a new creation can be made. First Corinthians talks about that. Um, uh, the wisdom of God, the new wisdom that uh, makes a new world out of that darkness, out of that cross. And Jesus says, my God, why have you abandoned me? That's death. And he says it, I think, over and over again for three hours. And then he says, it's finished. Okay. He takes a Nazarite vow at the Last Supper, says, I will not drink any more wine. Before he goes on the cross, they offer him wine. He refuses it. He's under the Nazarite holy war vow. He spends his time in death under the wrath of God. He says, it's finished, and his vow is fulfilled. He drinks wine. Then he gives up his spirit, breathes it out. You can't do that. Try it. Try breathing it out and ending it. That's it. You can't. Your body will suck air in again. But Jesus can. Something's happened. And he breathes out the spirit. This is the very first Pentecost right here. Jesus breathes out his spirit and somebody receives it and makes a confession of faith. And who is it? It's a Gentile. Okay? The new kingdom is is out here. Okay. It's universal. It's this Gentile who receives the Spirit that Jesus gives out, and then Jesus dies, and I think the death that He dies at that point is the death that was promised to Adam at the tree of knowledge. Because when Jesus rises again, He rises in glory. And I think that that gives us some indication of what was ultimately promised when God says you eat this tree and you die. Jesus comes to this tree... And if, and if I'm right in this, I don't see how I can be wrong, but if I'm right, if, I mean it's like like Douglas Wilson says, I always think I'm right, but I don't always I don't think I'm always right. So I don't think I'm always right and I may not be right about this, but right now I think I'm right. that this second that this second kind of death here is actually giving us some picture of this transformation. You know, just paying for our sins, doesn't mean that God, Jesus, would be raised in a glorified body. If God just wanted to vindicate Jesus and say, you see, He was a righteous man, He could have been raised back in the same body. Couldn't He? Why is He raised in a glorified body? Not everyone's nodding, but I want to see some nods. Okay. Why is He raised in a glorified body? Why doesn't God say, See, He was an innocent man. He has paid for all of your sins. I will bring Him back to life again like I did Lazarus. That's not what happens. He's raised in a transformed state. That means there's something more going on here than just paying for sin. And that's why I think there are two things here. There's the death that we deserve in the negative sense of being cut off from God forever for three hours... And then there's the death in that positive sense of the first stage of transformation that seems to be the second thing that happens. This is, as, this is as far as I can get with it. Okay, this is on the table. So it's, it's up to Bill Young, and Peter and Jeff and Rich to see if they can do anything with this or slice it to pieces, all right? In the morning, we'll talk about land and city as the way the New Covenant is. It will be a no-holds-barred attack on agrarianism, which is just Judaizing theology. And uh, so y'all come. No, no. Yes, now it's time for questions. You mentioned the to robbers Yeah. Oh, it's in chapter eleven, don't you? Don't you have chapter eleven of Daniel memorized? Well, you know what? I know that that's in there because of my translation, but I don't. You know, uh, I said Daniel, but I think that's actually Zechariah in the parallel time passage. Okay, I, I'll, I'll, I'll try to remember to look that up. There are. Yeah. Daniel but not the word. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the the Antiochus distributes plunder booty, or the, the angry king distributes them. Uh but those who forsake the covenant okay. Sorry. That that was my false memory playing tricks on me. So I think it's in Zachary. I'll, I'll try to uh the other had study Uh huh. There's a literary structure in it. Uh, Ezekiel receives the message that the, that Jerusalem has been put under siege, and his wife dies. So, the wife of the priest—he's not allowed to publicly mourn. She, he, and his, his wife are obviously a sea, homologous with Israel and Yahweh and Israel. Then you have the message to all these nations that they're all going to die too, and some of them come at different times, but they're all put here. And then Jerusalem falls. Okay, so. I think they're all part of one piece here, I guess you'd say. Uh, but the nations are all brought down into Sheol, Jerusalem falls, and then then it starts up again. Are you, uh, are you seeing some significance in the sequence of the, the of Maine, going down to the grave first? And then Jerusalem falls in chapter 3 that's what it's about. the book of Oh, I'm in Jeremiah. Excuse me. Let me let me look. Uh, yeah, that's, that's at the beginning of the judgments of the oracles about the uh, nations. Uh, immediately in chapter 25. Uh, yeah, he he does return to to Israel. There, I guess. Um, oh. What I wanted to look at was the dates. Yeah. The date for the lamentation sections here is actually after the fall of the city, although it's literally put here. So chronologically, this is given afterwards. So you could do it that way. Uh, in Zephaniah, the city is attacked, and then the judgment spreads north, south, east, and west in Zephaniah 2. So, I have that in my head, and I'm, I'm assuming that the same basic construction is here. The judgment falls first on the house of God, but this whole world is pulled down with it. Am I? Well, yeah. so go you... ahead and say what you're thinking. <laughs> well, just the, the sequence seems to be that you have these announcements in the literary sequence. i do not I of not crowd. Yeah. So you have these announcements of judgments the Nations, with all of them descending to the grave in chapter 2 but not until chapter 33 we have Jerusalem fall. Uh-huh. It's like Jerusalem in the liberation is the last to die and then what, the first to be raised? It is. It would be the first to be raised. First, uh, is the is the chiasm for that all the nations of falling. Jerusalem falls, and then Jerusalem is uh-huh. reborn, and all the nations will be Well, if it's chiasm, I can go for that. <laughs> 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 well, I see your point. I mean, obviously... The theology is that it could be done either way. Either is either the fall of, of Israel as priests drags everything else down with it, or God is judging the world, and as a part of that, Israel is actually also the last of climax of the series of judgments. First shall be last, and then the last become first. <laughs> That's right. Any any other confusions? Yes. That's the one that's first no, I'm thinking of Zechariah. Um, and, and the difficulty is here, it's in the second half of the book where I would have to demonstrate that this is the same as the Maccabean period. But where he says, uh, hey, Look at, at Zechariah Oh, I know. That's, uh, uh, that's in the night visions. I know all about that. Let, let me let me get that stuff together for tomorrow, and then I can be more coherent. Yeah. You talk about the resurrection the transfiguration of Jesus' flesh, but you know, more of the, the of sin and the of, You know this already, but it might be elsewhere else. also can remember this. The first one is the Paul uses various arguments. How do we have to do it for all the, the expiation of sin? There's a natural body, but also a spiritual body. He also talks about seeds, plants having to die first. He yeah. talks about mortality immortality. So that's right there in the context of that passage where it talks about the sting, death, and sin. You have that, that more in there. And the other thing I was thinking about, of course, know, you know, you taught us this, is it in the the near bringing system. The system of sacrifices. You have the death of the animal, but then the animal undergoes a transformation, cutting up, preparation, and ascension, and then transfiguration on the on the fire of the altar, which is that glorification. So all of that has to be fulfilled in Jesus. Yeah. Let me uh, let me say that again for people over here and for the tape. One point is that in the in what we call the sacrificial system, the systems of things brought near to God in Leviticus, you don't just have the killing of the animal and the display of his blood, and that's the end of the offering. Uh, That's only the beginning of it. The whole allegory of these offerings involves all this other stuff, which after the animal is killed and his blood is displayed and you have propitiation and you have justification, then you have glorification. The animal is placed into the consuming fire of God. It says trees are put in there, and so it's like a new garden of Eden, and God's presence is in there because the fire is stoked up, and the animal is put in there representing us, and then it ascends up uh, as an isha for Yahweh, which I think means bride. But whatever it means, it's transfiguration and ascension. So the rituals have never been just about forgiving sins. The rituals are about justification and glorification and uh, all of this other stuff. And the other point um, uh, Jeff was making is that in 1 Corinthians 15, a lot of the things that Paul says about death don't have anything to do with sin a seed falls into the ground and dies and uh, is transformed. Oh, there's, there is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. A lot of the analogies don't have to do with sin causing death. They're just things that happen. They're the way the world is. And so the, the overlay of redemptive history is an overlay or a modification of creation history. We would have had these things anyway, but now because of sin, there, that process is corrupted and then that corrupt process is redeemed. So you have a process of death and resurrection, which then becomes a process of death and degradation and judgment, and then that's redeemed into a process of death and glorification or forgiveness and glorification all of that that pattern's already there and redemption then is not something strange or different from it it doesn't add some new history that would uh to it in a sense it's patterned onto it thank you again for enjoying this episode of the theopolis podcast